glad to have you guys back home and uh, tell us tell us about the work tell us about the mission tell us about about the well I like to have fun admittedly uh, that that video makes it look like we play a lot and I found out that my spiritual gift is getting people wet come on <laughs> <laughs> so <coughs> um, but it's really it's really difficult to remember all the time that we're not there to have fun necessarily that's not our purpose our purpose is to encourage uh, to witness to people that don't know of Christ or who are young in their relationship with Christ. And so that was really the purpose of our trip. Um, one, one of the things like that we had this year is the, the theme for the camp was it's all about character. And every night we had a different speaker come in from around Italy and speak on different aspects of character for the kids who came. Uh, a lot of the kids are believers. Some of them are very young. There's a few that are non-believers. They don't really know anything of Christ. And their backgrounds are a little rough. So coming into a camp like this, they get an opportunity to see what it's like to be like in a family of believers and what it's like to be in a body of Christ. And actually, Stella has a little story just about one girl that she'd like to share. I don't know if I can do it. I'm going to have to. Um, um, so uh, last night of camp, um, I went with the girls in their room, and we talked until like 5 a.m. We played together. Well, we went all together thinking we were going to have fun in the room, but it was even better because we started sharing our testimonies, and we started talking about God, and a lot of them, they just came because ne they've never heard about Jesus. And half of the girls they don't have a father because their father abandoned them. And the other half is going through, like, their family are broken because there's no job in Italy. And they're going through divorce. And especially this girl, uh, she was weeping all night. And the next morning when we were leaving, because she didn't want to leave camp because she had to, she had to go back home and face... Um, their family going through divorce and they're being like in the process of divorcing for the last five years and um, so she she was really like depressed and we all prayed together and we encouraged each other and we still keep contact with each other and um, I just want to encourage Hillside because camp was possible because Hillside contributed contributed it contributed <laughs> I'm Italian. Uh, and <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, because we do, with the money that we receive, that we raise, camp was really expensive, but it's because we support the kids. We have scholarship for them because the majority don't have a job, so they can't come to camp. So they're at camp because the church and Hillside was part of it. And so um, I would like to share a verse with the church and and us. So it's Romans 12, verse 4 and 5. Just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. So just you guys came with us on our trip. You know, we're, we're all the member of one body, so... Uh, we just want to thank you guys for supporting us and for supporting what God wanted to use us for. Amen. Amen. 
Praise the Lord, yeah. And let's uh, let's pray this morning for the young people. They said kids. You need to know they're high school and young adults, all the way up to like age 30 that will come and be a part of these camps. And they got to hear the love of Jesus Christ. They got to see and really experience the love of Christ. And so we just want to pray for them. And uh, we're thankful that you guys are home. We know it is home for you there. This is kind of home away from home. And uh, so to see family as well, what a treat. So let's just pray and ask God's blessing. Father, today we pray for the body of Christ in Italy. And we pray for those, Lord, who are really on their journey to discovering Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. We are praying, God, for the strengthening of the church, that they would be built up in their most holy faith. We thank you, Father, for the young believers who were at camp, who were strengthened in the area of really the character of Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, help them to implement and become, to really be transformed from the inside out, to offer their lives as living sacrifices and be not conformed to this world, but being transformed by the renewing of their mind. Lord, help them to be salt and light. And Lord, for those that have yet to say yes, we pray, God, that they would encounter the light of Christ. Christ in us, the hope of glory, and that they would give their hearts to Jesus. And so, Lord, we thank you for bringing Adam and Stella home. We pray, Lord, for just the work that you are doing in and through them, in and through Stella's family, and the body there in Italy. God, be glorified. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' mighty name. And everyone said a strong amen. 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 Let's give it up. Praise God. They said we went with them. The beauty is we didn't all get to experience Adam's gifting in getting wet. And so (laughs) thank you, Adam. Uh, Inside your program this morning, there are a lot of announcements. Uh, We're not going to take time to go through those today, uh, but would encourage you to read through as there are many many things that are happening at Hillside that we want you to be aware of, that we want you to be a part of, and that you would be engaged in. I will mention the ladies' retreat, as I think this Sunday may be the last Sunday to register. Oh, no, there's one more after this. Okay, that's good. So there are two Sundays remaining today, and you can register afterwards. My wife, Kim, will be in the back, and she'll be uh, helping to register. So gals, be sure to sign up. You won't want to miss that. All right, we have one other special treat with us this morning. We've had an amazing summer this summer, guys, and if you've been a part uh, this summer, you know that connected with our fellowship and within our fellowship, we've actually had 12 weddings since April, 12 weddings. And I, we have, I, I'm actually officiating another wedding next Saturday uh, that's connected with our fellowship, but we have an announcement this morning, and these two don't know that I'm doing this, but I'm doing it anyway because they're both here. We've had an engagement, and Austin and Kelsey, will you guys just stand? These two (laughs) engaged this past week. We're super excited for you. We're praying God's blessing on you, and we're really, really excited to see what God is doing in your lives and through your lives. So the Lord bless you, and I know uh, some moms and dads are pretty excited and pretty happy, and some people were kind of saying, like, finally. Anyway, <laughs> anyway, be seated. <laughs> you guys are awesome. Super excited. Uh, while we were worshiping uh, last Sunday, I felt the prompting of the Spirit, and when I came to the pulpit, uh, I just engaged in the next thing. 
And this morning I was reminded of that word that I felt like the Lord had laid on my heart simply to share. And so Psalm 139, and this may be for you. And I don't know what it means for you, if this is for you. Um, Maybe there's someone here today, very specifically, that this is for, and thus the delay in the Lord reminding me this morning. Psalm 139 begins with, O Lord, you have searched me and know me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thoughts afar off. You comprehend my path and my lying down, and are acquainted with all my ways. There is not a word on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. He goes on to say a little further in verse 13, For you formed my inner parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works that my soul knows very well. Verse 17, how precious are, uh, how, how precious also your thoughts to me, O Lord, how great the sum of them. If I should count them, they would, they would be more in number than the sand. When I awake, I am still with you. Verse 23, search me, O God, and know my heart, and try me, and know my anxieties, and see if there be any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Uh, Father, may you add to uh, really the reading of your word, and if this is a reminder to any one person here, that Lord, you have formed us and fashioned us in our mother's wombs, and we are fearfully and wonderfully made, and you are always with us. Search us, and Lord, reveal to us if there be any wicked ways in us, and lead us in your ways everlasting. Amen. Amen. Um, it is the uh, it, it's the anniversary of 9/11 today. 15 years ago, uh, there was a terrorist attack on America. Uh, two jets were flown into the twin towers in New York City, and many lives were lost. It was an awakening of a nation for a very short period, and many of those families' lives have been altered uh, forever. Loved ones were lost, and so today is a day of remembrance. We don't want to forget the tragedies that have occurred, uh, uh, certainly in America. And so just for a moment of uh, prayer, I want to again pray for our nation with you. Uh, Jesus reminds us that his Father's house will be a house of prayer. And so we are unashamedly uh, going to be a church that prays together regularly and often. And so let's pray and ask God's blessing on our nation, on those families that have lost loved ones. Father, thank you again for America where we've had liberty, we've had freedom. We've had freedom to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that in our day of remembrance of the events of 15 years ago, where some in this room were not even born and only have been told what has transpired on our soil, 
devastation and an awakening, but on only a momentary awakening. First, Father, we pray for the families that have lost loved ones. May your sustaining grace continue to remind them uh, of who you are. Your word tells us that it is the grace of God which uh, brings us salvation, and it's teaching us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and leading us, if you will, to the understanding of Jesus Christ. Your word declares that uh, we can have victory in this life. And so, Lord, will you, with your grace, remind loved ones who remain that you have supplied and provided a plan for their lives, and it includes salvation. Bring about salvation even now, Father. And, Lord, we pray for that awakening here. Certainly our nation was uh, awakened for but a moment. And Lord, it seems we've been lulled back into the norm, the systems of this world that are controlled by the God of this age and the prince of the power of the air. And uh, pray, Lord, for an awakening, awakening in our nation. We pray for not only a revival in the church, but an awakening in the world, uh, in our certainly in our nation, God and in the world too. And so, Father, be glorified and help, and may we do our part to proclaim the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, we are in the book of Genesis, the book of beginnings. We started last week. It was really an introduction. And uh, so I invite you to turn in your Bibles with me to the book of Genesis. This morning we will be in chapter 2. Last week we looked at chapter 1. Our emphasis was on the creation of the universe. We looked at the doctrine that the scriptures are the inspired word of God. The scriptures being inspired in their totality, the Old and the New Testament, that they are inspired, they are inerrant, infallible, and authoritative uh, in their original writings. Now, we recognize that there has been uh, certainly uh, no uh, original documents that we have from the writings that we have, uh, manuscripts, and there are as many as 20,000 plus manuscripts, both of the Old and the New Testament, and they are validated. And so there uh, may be, someone would say, well, there are a few errors in translation, transliteration, or um, even in those manuscripts, there may be errors from the originals. What we would simply say in relationship to those is none of those minute errors would even equate percentage-wise to that which you would allow in your daily diet of food that you eat. The FDA has regulations on how many fly wings can be in your hamburger meat. And yet, without reservation, you'll make a hamburger, put it on the barbecue, cook it up, and swallow it down and never give thought of a potential percentage of fly wings in your hamburger meat. Well, the same goes with this translated word. There are, there may be minuscule percentages of uh, translation and or manuscript error from manuscript to manuscript, but they are so minute that it is really uh, non-discernible, and certainly none of them would be anywhere associated with anything that we would hold true to be doctrine. Does that make sense? So it might be a conjunction where it was translated and instead of but, if that makes sense. So I'll leave that with you. If you want to look further into that, we certainly have resources that we would love to put into your hands. Um, 
So all of those things being said, last week we looked at that doctrine. We also looked at the origin of the universe, and uh, it was a, uh, I think, a very relevant conversation. Uh, we looked Sunday night in the totality of uh, Genesis chapter 1, and so we covered uh, in greater detail Sunday evening about the different modes of thought or models of thought in relationship to how God did creation. There are seven principal models of creation in Christendom that we have uh, held fast to. We looked at four of them in a greater measure because those seem to be the most popularly accepted. This guy right here, the, the, the camp that I pitched my tent in, albeit we cannot be completely dogmatic, the camp that I pitch my tent in is a young earth. And so I believe in the six literal days of creation, the seventh literal day, a day of rest, wherewith God did all of his creative work. And I believe in a young earth. And so I, don't, I do not hold or ascribe to the millions and billions of years that uniformitarianism and secular society would try and educate us in. I believe that the Word of God is uh, the unadulterated truth. It is absolute. And so, I'll leave that with you. You can listen to last Sunday evening's message, and I cover some of those. But again, it's only skipping a stone over the surface of the water. For the student of the Word of God, which I trust every one of us is in ambition towards becoming students of the Word, that it will require study for you. And as you navigate where you land on these things, I will say, and I will remind everyone, that there are two main worldviews that come out of Genesis 1-1, right from Genesis 1-1. And every worldview from there comes from one of those two camps, one of those two worldviews. Either you believe in eternal matter, or you believe in eternal God that created all things that we see. Does that make sense? And every worldview stems from one of those two main points. And so we are from the camp that God exists and he created all things. And so uh, today's sermon uh, will align itself with in chapter 2, we're going to be looking at the doctrine of the one true God. We saw in chapter 1 the introduction of the name of God, Elohim, it was used in 34 verses from 1-1 through Genesis chapter 2 and verse 3. It's used actually 34 times in 34 verses, Elohim. In each of those occurrences, it has the plural ending in the Hebrew, I am, and is used in its sentence, grammar, and structure in singular form. A singular God and yet, plural. We would take the totality of Scripture from Genesis through Revelation and certainly Jesus Christ himself who reveals the nature and the Godhead in three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we'll look at that a little bit closer tonight, or excuse me, today. Um, so, uh, we'll also today consider, if time allows for it, the origin of life and I, uh, I mentioned last week that I'm kind of a closet science buff, and Genesis being the book of origins, the book of beginnings, uh, we saw the beginning of the universe 
last week in Genesis chapter 1. It really is the first of 11 parts in the book of Genesis. And it is an introduction and it gives us an overview, if you will, of the creation week. Now then, we saw all matter, space, and time that had been created. And then God formed and fashioned. He also created really the animals, which we would probably equate that to the soul portion. And then God, thirdly, that word bara, he created man and he gave man spirit or he breathed into him life and spirit. And so the creation of matter, the creation of the soul, if you will, and the creation of the spirit. And so today we're going to look at a little closer the origin of life. And I think more than anything, to assist us in why we believe what we believe. Why we believe what we believe. Why do you believe that God created life? Verse or versus what the secular world would be telling us that natural elements, non-replicating elements became self-replicating organisms. Matter plus energy equals life. Why would you believe one over the other? The world would tell us the evidence is overwhelming that that is not the case, yet you and I, if we come from the presuppositional position that the Word of God is true, we might conclude different uh, results from the evidence that we look at. I believe full, wholeheartedly that there is a greater amount of evidence to demonstrate that life requires an initial cause, or an initial cause that is living, God himself. And so, we'll look at the origin of life, and if time allows for us this morning, we will also pick up in chapter 2, uh, two institutions that are established by God, and that is the institution of marriage, can I get a hearty Amen. And the institution of family, another hearty amen, amen. So let's dive in. And I'm going to uh, invite everyone to come out on Sunday evening. We will be doing a verse-by-verse study through chapter 2. We will probably revisit some of the things we discussed last Sunday evening, verse-by-verse study through chapter 2. These are foundational for our faith, foundational. And so I want to encourage you, we will be looking at uh, the uh, origin or the creation of man. We will be looking at the uh, doctrine of original sin. We'll be looking at a doctrine of salvation. And uh, we'll be looking at also tonight, very likely, uh, when, when were angels created? Um, what was it like prior to Satan's rebellion? Okay, so we'll look at those things tonight. Come and be a part. It'll be great. Let's pick up in Genesis chapter 2, and let's read verse 4 together. Let's read the text. Genesis chapter 2, beginning in verse 4. This is the history of the heavens and the earth. When they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, before any plant of the field was in the earth, and before any herb of the field had grown, For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the earth, and there was no man to till the ground. Verse 6, But a mist went up from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. 
you might circle those two verses and just make a note. Those could come into play at some point in time later in relationship uh, to that pre-Noadic flood world. Uh, verse 7, And the Lord God formed man out of the dust of the ground, and breath into his nostrils, and breathed, excuse me, and breathed into his nostrils uh, the breath of life, and man became a living being. The Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now a river went out of Eden to, the wa- to water the garden, and from there it parted and became four river heads. The name of the first is Kishon, and it is the one which skirts the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. Bedillion and the onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It is the one which goes around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third is Hedekel. It is the one which goes toward the east of Assyria. The fourth river is the Euphrates. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may eat freely or freely eat. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. And the Lord God said, It is not good that a man should be alone, or that man should be alone. And Austin Schaefer said, Amen. (laughs) I will make him a helper comparable to him. Out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave names to all the cattle, to the birds of the air, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper comparable to him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman. And he brought her to the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and the woman. Amen. So, these are the generations. This is the phrase that will be used to introduce the ten sections, if you will, of the book of Genesis that we will be looking at section by section. Each section won't be covered in that week. We'll be in this section for a couple of weeks, then we'll be in the next section for a couple of weeks, etc. What I'd like to look at today is the doctrine of the one true God. As I mentioned previously in the preceding 34 verses, God, Elohim in the Hebrew, is has been introduced to us some 34 times and is consistent uh, with its plurality as well as its singular use. But here in Revelation chapter, excuse me, in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 4, we are introduced to the name Lord God, Lord God. It's the first use 
of what is known theologically as the Tetragrammaton. It is the four letters in its original manuscript. There were also vowels included, but somewhere before, uh, probably uh, a couple hundred years before the time of Christ, the rabbis got to the place where they were concerned out of fear that they were pronunciating or enunciating the name of God incorrectly, and so therefore they removed the vowels of that name and they replaced literally the four letters, uh, the Yod and the He and the Vav and the He, and they replaced it with the name Adonai, the name of God Adonai. And so they took those vowels from Adonai and had applied them to the uh, Tetragrammaton, those four letters, the uh, Y, the H, the W, and the H, and they had tried to come up with an enunciation that they believed to be accurate, and with that failure and fear, they felt it was improper to even enunciate the name of God. And so we have in our scripture uh, many uses of this Y, Y-H-W-H, which is uh, that Hebrew tetragrammaton is what it's called, and it is uh, really the name of God. We have ascribed to it vowel sounds. We use the name Yahweh. It's also pronou- pronounced Jehovah because the Y has a J sound, and it's been uh, known as Jehovah as well. But here we see the name Yahweh Elohim. Yahweh Elohim. Let me first mention in recognizing the one true God. He reveals himself personally with his name. His name Yahweh or Jehovah literally means the self-existent one. The existing one. Self-existent. God is. the great I am. He transcends this universe. This universe is temporal. It had a beginning and it has an end. God has no beginning and he has no end. He is eternal. He is the eternal existing one. Hallelujah. He is the absolute, period. And he has revealed himself to you and I personally. Personally. He reveals himself within his creation constantly, consistently, and always lovingly. And that is awesome. Desiring with man. So the proper name for the one true God, Yahweh, the existing one, revealing himself as Elohim, singular yet plural. And so in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 and Genesis 3, this personal, self-existent God is beginning to reveal himself and hinting about his nature. The Godhead, as we would discover in the rest of Scripture in this revealing, he's hinting of it here. His nature, his 
invisible qualities that we are told in the book of Romans that are clearly seen by those things that he has made. So that relationship of three in one should be resplendent in all of the things that God has made, and certainly they are. So based on these beginnings and these hints of the Godhead, and based on the entire revealed word of God, we uphold the doctrine of the one true God. So let me read what this doctrine looks like. We believe in the only true God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We believe that the Godhead eternally exists in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. These three are one God, having precisely the same nature, attributes, and perfections, and are worthy of precisely the same homage, confidence, and obedience. He, they, are eternally omniscient, omnipotent, and omnipresent. The all-powerful God. Now, I won't take time this morning to go through the litany of verses that support this triune God. What I will do is I will simply share with you at least one or more occasions where we see all three in one moment. Because there are theologies out there, uh, there's a oneness theology that is a false doctrine that teaches that there is one God and he simply reveals himself at different times in different ways. Sometimes he would reveal himself as the Father. Another time he would reveal himself as the Son. And another time he would reveal himself as the Spirit of God. And this is flat out a false doctrine. There are three distinct persons, one God. Now then, when Jesus was here, and he was to be baptized by John the Baptist in the River Jordan, you would recall the story that he in his baptism, as John baptized him, and he came up out of the water, Jesus, the Son of God, was physically being baptized, standing in the River Jordan. And a voice from heaven, from the Father, was heard, This is my Son, in whom I am well pleased. So you have the Father, who is in heaven, speaking on behalf of the Son who was standing in the River Jordan. And at that time, there was a manifestation of the Spirit of God which descended upon Jesus in the form of a dove. And so you have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit simultaneously revealed. So that completely destroys the theology or that false doctrine of oneness, if you will. Revealed again, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, I would encourage every one of us to be in a place where we would be able to answer someone who asks the question, why do you believe in the Trinity? You may have someone show up at your front door. You answer the door, and they say, hey, we're with the Watchtower Society. And they may recognize that you are a person of faith. When they do, they'll immediately attack your belief in the Trinity. They'll say, 
do you believe in the Trinity? Well, yes, I do. Do you know that the word Trinity is not in the Bible? And many Christians are like, I didn't know. I always respond this way. Did you know the word Bible is not in the Bible? He's having a little fun. But the idea there is we should be in a position to be able to defend why we believe what we believe. Why we believe what we believe. If you're here this morning and you say, I'm not sure I could explain the Trinity from Scripture. I want to encourage you, you should get to the place where you can. We've done that on a Sunday morning before, and I'm not going to take the time this morning to give you a, a, a rash of verses that would do this, but I will simply say to you, here's one simple way that you can, you can demonstrate that. If that Jehovah Witness is at your front door, here's a great question you can ask them. Who raised Christ from the dead? Who raised Jesus from the dead? If they say the Father, you can say, good answer. If they say the Son, you can say, good answer. If they say the Spirit, you can say, good answer. Because all three, Father, Son, and Spirit, raised Christ from the dead. They are one. And there is but one God. The Scripture tells us in the book of Isaiah many, many times, Isaiah 44, Isaiah 45, Isaiah 46, multiple times, there is but one God. Jesus said, destroy this temple and I will raise it up. Did Jesus lie? No. So Jesus raised himself from the dead. Romans chapter 8 says the spirit of God, or the spirit of him who raised Christ from the dead. The spirit raising Christ from the dead. Galatians tells us that the Father raised Christ from the dead. And Galatians also tells us that God raised Christ from the dead. The Spirit is God, the Son is God, and the Father is God. Three in one. Does that make sense? Does that make sense? I hope it does. Anyway, there's lots more for you there. We should be in a position to be able to explain the one true God. Now, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are never identical as to person. They're never the same nor confused as to relation, nor divided in respect to the Godhead. They're never in disunity. They're never divided, nor opposed as to cooperation. The Son is in the Father, and the Father is in the Son as into relationship. Jesus said, just as the Father is in me, and I am in the Father. The Son is with the Father, and the Father with the Son as to fellowship. The Father is not from the Son, but the Son is from the Father as to authority. And the Holy Spirit is from the Father and the Son proceeding as to nature, relationship, cooperation, and authority. Here's another thought. If those same JWs, Jehovah Witnesses, show up at your front door and try to tell you that the Spirit of God is an active force, just like the wind is an active force, they'll try and explain to you that you can see the results of the wind, but you cannot see the wind. It is simply a force that is at work. Many believers have thought to themselves, well, that sounds good. Is that right? And they begin to question their faith. Can I just encourage you, you could turn in your Bible to Acts chapter 5 and ask them to read in Acts chapter 5. In fact, just flip over to your Bibles real quick to Acts chapter 5. In Acts chapter 5, there is a story that is uh, a bit of a disturbing story. You would know them as Ananias and Sapphira. Uh, these two who uh, had purported on their own behalf to really uh, deceive and 
It says it this way. In verse 1, but a certain man named Ananias with his wife, or with Sapphira, his wife, stole a possession and kept back part of the proceeds, his wife also being aware of it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. You see, there was, in the early church, there were those who were selling their possessions and bringing the whole of the possessions and laying it before the apostles' feet. So we sold this piece of land and we wanted to give. Barnabas was one of these. He gave the proceeds and said this is for the church and to be distributed to those that are in need. And these two thought, well, let's sell this piece of property, but we'll hold back some, but we'll give the impression that we're given the whole thing. This is what happened. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Now underline that for a moment, to lie to the Holy Spirit. Why would, we, why, would we, why would I have you underline why is it that Satan has filled your heart that you would lie to the Holy Spirit? Let me ask you a question. Have you ever tried to lie to the wind? You're not blowing very strong right now. <laughs> You're a weak wind. People would probably call the police and have you uh, taken in because you were, they were concerned about your sanity. You, in fact... How many of you have ever tried to lie to your chair? I can't even think of a good lie for a chair. You only have three legs. You wouldn't do that. It's an inanimate object. You can only lie to a person. You can't even lie to your dog. You can try. <laughs> Come here, boy, I have something for you. Just kidding. But he doesn't understand. He doesn't comprehend. It's not a lie to him. Does that make sense? He doesn't have reason. A person, a personality has reason. Now let's go a little further in this. But Peter said to Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? You keep back part of the price of the land for yourself. While it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your own control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. Whoa. Peter equates the Holy Spirit to God. The Holy Spirit is God. He's not an active force, like they would say. So I... Jehovah Witness shows up at my front door. If I have an opportunity to visit with them, we'll get to the point after we've talked about the deity of Christ, we'll get to the point where we talk about the deity of the Holy Spirit. I bring them to this chapter, and I ask them to read in the King James Version of the Bible. They read it, and they say, the younger of the two will look at the one who's a little older and say, what sayeth you? <laughs> How do we answer this? And they can't. And so, brothers, I hope will help you in your understanding. Um, Genesis 1 again introduces us to God. Genesis 2, today's text, draws us to him in a more personal relationship. God desires a relationship with you and I. And that's, I love the very sense that in the very beginning of the book, he reveals his personal name, Yahweh Jehovah, as we pronounce it today. Yahweh Jehovah Elohim, because he is a he is the one true God who has revealed himself eternally in Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. 
uh, and many, many other scriptures that could support all of these things, and uh, we will get some of these. In fact, if you look on our website on what we believe, you'll find a whole listing of these uh, verses that would support uh, triune God. What I'd like to do next, though, is look at the origin of life, because we find in in Genesis chapter 2, this restating or the retelling, if you will, with a greater detail of the generations of the heavens and the earth, we find that there's a retelling in a very short sense of the, the third day. It's the third day in Genesis chapter 1 where he brings forth herbs and trees and shrubs, each with fruit or seed in and of themselves. And he says... In verse 9, and out of the ground the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The origin of life. How to begin or how how to bring down uh, to just our heads. What did God do? There's something very unique about life. If you held a handful of sand, we could take it over to coffee laboratories, not coffee with a C-O-F-F-E-E, but uh, coffee, a business over here in uh, northeast Portland, and they could analyze the sand, and there would be a list of elements that are contained there, but they're non-replicating. They're simply elements from the periodic table in chemistry. How many of you remember chemistry and the periodic table with its atomic numbers and atomic masses, et cetera, et cetera? Now then, they're non-replicating. There's something very unique about life. In In fact, in fact, in fact, if we could talk about molecules and atoms for a moment. Now, I know you're not in science class, but I think this is an important part for us to recognize and understand because science will demonstrate to us as evidences of the worldview with which we hold that there is one true God and he has revealed himself and the scriptures are inspired so we can hold fast this truth. The evidences are in that which God has made. Now, in a complexity statement. A guy I read often used this example. He used the example of beads. How many of you have ever taken beads and made necklaces out of the beads? Okay, so some of us have done it. Imagine if we had a jar with 374 beads in it. Everyone say 374. 374. Some of them are white, some of them are black. Imagine if we took that jar and spilled them out on the ground and then took a nice long piece of string and just started randomly picking beads up, putting one, you pick one, give it to me, I pick one, give, you know, next person one, and we just start stringing them on the string. And when we finish getting all of them on there, we tie the ends and we look at this, and then we begin to look at a very unique pattern randomly occurs between the white and the black beads. Like one black bead, then a white bead, then a black bead. Dot, dot. Then maybe two white beads and then dash, dot. Then two white beads, then dash. Two black beads together. Then white bead, then dot, 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 
God than, than dot, dot. And we realize that randomly we put these beads on the string and they spell something in Morse code. Dot, dot, dash, dot, in. Dash, dot, 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 the beginning. God created the heavens and the earth. And imagine if it perfectly laid out randomly those 374 beads, black and white, to give us that message in Morse code. We would be like, whoa. Let me ask you, how many of you believe perfectly that we could randomly do that without ha having any influence on it Maybe we were blindfolded and just started picking up those beads. How many of you believe that we could do that randomly? To get it perfect. <laughs> there is absolutely no possible way that that could happen by random chance. Now, let me explain to you the mathematics behind it so that you will know and at least comprehend and say, yeah, that's right, it can happen that way. In our alphabet, there would be two letters or two colors, black and white. That's our alphabet, too. 374 bits, so it would be 2 to the power of 374, which equates to, in factorial numbers, 10 to the 104th power. We would have one chance in 10 to the 104th power. Now, just so you understand what's 10 to the 104th power, that's a 1 with 104 zeros in it. That is a very large number. In fact, that is a ginormous number. <laughs> Scientists have measured that they believe and agree upon the number of atoms, not molecules, atoms in the universe is equal to 10 to the 66th power. That's one with 66 zeros behind it. That's how many atoms are in the universe. Let me help you with seconds, because we all understand time, right? We all have a feeling for time. Like some of you are like, yeah, are you done yet? <laughs> time. Time is measured in seconds and minutes and hours and days, if you will. The evolutionist would say that there are upwards of 18 billion years in the universe, 18 billion. That is equal to 10 to the 18th power second. That's a one with 18 zeros behind it. That's how many seconds there are if we give 18 billion years. And we're talking about one chance in 10 to the 104th. Think about how much time is, I mean, that's, that number 104 is massive. 10 to the 66, that's just the known amount of atoms in the universe. If you go to subatomic particles like protons, electrons, and neutrons, it goes to 10 to the 80th power. That's all. That's a huge number, too, but it's nowhere near the probability. Physics and statistics have come together and merged and said, at some point in time, there has to be an impossibility where there is absolutely no chance and it's just strictly absurd. The number they picked using statistical analysis, one chance in 10 to the 50th. Anything above one chance in 10 to the 50th is absolutely absurd. And for us to take beads, 374 of them, with only two letters in the alphabet, black and white, and 
to randomly get it, it would be one chance in 10 to the 104th just to get that sentence right. The probability is absolutely zero. It could never happen random chance. And yet, somehow, in Christendom, let alone in secular society, we have bit, hook, line, and sinker that somehow the origin of life and we ourselves have randomly happened. And let me help you understand just, just one piece of this. In your blood cell and my blood cell, there is a necessary molecule told, called hemoglobin. Hemoglobin. Hemoglobin is what allows uh, metabolic activity in your body. It's what helps gain energy, if you will. It's, it's that which oxygenates your blood. Right? It, it has a uh, reaction with your lungs and the uh, alveoli in your lungs, and it, they oxygenate, and then it takes all of that oxygen to the outermost parts of your, your body. Hemoglobin is what does that. Hemoglobin, are you ready for this, is made up of 574 parts, interconnected parts, and it's about 20 different amino acids. So its alphabet is 20 amino acids, and it's 574 parts. So you would take 20 times 574, or 20 to the 574th power. A random assembling of all the known matter in the universe to generate hemoglobin would be one chance in 10 to the 650th power. Now remember, absurdity in physics is 10 to the 50th power, one chance in 10 to the 50th. Just one molecule of hemoglobin would be one chance in 10 to the 650th power. Do you see quantitatively how ridiculous that is, it's absolute absurdity, and yet they're teaching, and we have been taught, my generation was taught, that that happened by random chance, and it absolutely could not happen by random chance. If I mention DNA, deoxyribonucleic acid, most of you know what DNA is. It's a double helix molecule, right? That molecule, do you realize that there are over three billion parts in that molecule with over 200 different proteins. Imagine the probability of one DNA molecule being formed by random chance. The number is so magnanimous, our computers have a difficult time getting them on the screen with the number of zeros that would be behind it in exponential numbers. It's massive. And yet, hook, line, and sinker, somehow we say, well, it, there was this stuff, and then life. Matter plus energy. We... we we forget that there's information that has to be put in. The big question is, where did the information come from? You and I have the answer. The designer. The designer. His name is Yahweh Elohim. And I'd like to introduce him to you. The word of God says, God said. And it was. God said. Now, we take the evidences that science has revealed to us and we say, look reasonably at this. It can't be reasoned. It happened by random chance. In fact, when NASA was training our astronauts to identify living organisms on the moon, when Apollo 11 was going to be landed and you know, guys like Buzz Aldridge and 
others who were on the uh, crew under the commander of the Atlantic Fleet of Enemies, they were equipping them to identify bacteria that had less than 400 centrical parts. And even that, if we gave them the available time in seconds, 10 to the 18th power, they could create linkages of 100, and they would assemble and reassemble a million times a second. In 10 to the 18th seconds, or 18 million years, there would not be enough time to formulate the one probable alignment of proteins and amino acids to create life. There's just not enough time, period. And there's few, the, the probabilities absolutely outweigh, and so it's an impossibility. And I, again, I know it's mathematical, and people are just like, you lost me. What I really want to do is I simply want to say God began life. Here's, let me put it in simplistic form, and then we're going to be done. I can't believe it's already what time it is if I'm looking up at that clock. Uh, stretch time. All right, we'll be done in a moment. Let me help you with this, and let me just simply say this. The laws that govern our universe mandate. We've talked a little bit about the first law and second law of thermodynamics. We'll see if we can wait to talk again about that tonight uh, in some measure. But here's, a, here's another law that governs our universe, the law of cause and effect. It simply says this, no effect, which everything we see in the universe we can call a phenomenon, and no effect or no phenomena will be greater than its initial cause. Well, it can be equal to but never greater quantitatively or qualitatively greater than its initial cause. And you apply that law to non-replicating matter to self-replicating organisms. If the self-replicating organism is the effect, its initial cause has to be greater than the effect. Living organism complexity is much greater than non-replicating elements. In other words, eternal matter is not a sufficient initial cause for something that's living. Does that make sense? In order to have something living, you have to have something living beget the living. God is a sufficient initial cause because he is living. Hallelujah. Yes. You say, wow, PD, how's that going to change my day today? What's the, what, what's the difference maker for me? There's one true God. And he is the originator of life. If he originated life and he's a designer, one would deduce that he had a purpose in life. It has been said that the two greatest days of anybody's life are the day that he is born and the day that he discovers why he is born. Have you discovered why you're born? What does God want to do in and through you? When I mention the institutions of marriage and family, what is it that your family, what is your mission, your purpose as a family? What is your mission and purpose as a husband and wife? God, the God of the universe who has revealed himself personally, consistently, and lovingly, he has a plan for your life. He has a purpose for your marriage. He has a purpose for your family and a mission. He has a purpose and a mission for this church, for the church. Have you discovered 
what it is that God has called you to. What is it that you are supposed to be about? Is it that God just wants us to burn our energy and our time while we're here? Spinning our wheels? Waiting for the next Wednesday night Survivor show to show up so we can see who's going to be voted off the island? I don't think so. God's got a greater purpose. A greater purpose. And it won't be tied up in the systems and the things of this world. It'll be tied up in the kingdom of God. This is an invitation to everyone here today to jump in with both feet into God's kingdom. We need to start swimming in the waters of God. Swim and stop tiptoeing around in the river of God, but dive in and swim and be engaged in the kingdom of God because God has a purpose for us individually, collectively, and as units, husbands and wives, families. There's assignments for us. What assignment does God have even for you today? When we leave and we enter into the mission field, when we leave today and we enter into God's harvest field, we remember the words of Jesus Christ. You say four months into the harvest. I say, look at the fields, for they are white unto harvest, even now. Who is your mission today? What person? The eternal God who has revealed himself personally, he is speaking. He is speaking. Jesus said, I only do what I have heard with my Father. The Father is speaking. Jesus said, when you pray, go into your room and close the door where your Father is, and your Father who is in the secret place will reward you openly. He will see in the secret place your faith and the communication that you have, and He will speak to you, and through that He will reveal even his plan and his purpose in our lives. It's an invitation today to jump fully in. Are you in? Are you about the kingdom of God? Or have you got caught up in the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the stuff? We all realize the stuff's going to drain, right? It's not about the stuff. It's not about the stuff. The kingdom of God. I invite you to stand with me this morning. I'm sure I have a lot more to say. I'll be more timely tonight uh, and probably more concise. Um, come back tonight, 6 o'clock, verse by verse. We'll have the fans going so it won't be so warm in here. And uh, thanks for being gracious and allowing us to go a few minutes longer than we normally would. If you're new today, this is not the norm. <laughs> or, uh, maybe. Uh, anyway, let's pray and ask the Lord's benediction and blessing on us as we go from this place. Father, we come in the mighty name of Jesus. We thank you for your presence in our midst. The word declares you inhabit the praises of your people. So, Father, you are here. Jesus, it says of you where two or three are gathered, there you are in our midst. And Holy Spirit, you are here because each one of every believer has brought you with them for you dwell within us and you inhabit. Uh, you, this place becomes the dwelling place of God the Spirit when we gather together as living stones 
We become as it is the Holy of Holies in the Spirit. Holy Spirit, you are here and you're welcome. We ask today your benediction as we go from this place that in our hearts we would set aside Jesus Christ as Lord. And we would be prepared to give a reason, an answer for the hope that is in us. And that we would be absolutely evangelistic in our witness. That we would proclaim the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That we would not be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus for it is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe. So Lord, help us to convey in these earthen vessels as we sang that song, you God have put that treasure in these earthen vessels, the life, the death, and the resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. And so Lord, may we convey. We love you, we praise you, and ask your blessing and benediction. And Lord, we are praying that in our hearts, every one of us would say, I want to be swimming in the kingdom of God. Swimming in God's kingdom. Lord, we love you and we praise you. We ask these things in Jesus' mighty name and all God's people said a strong amen. Go in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior. Have an amazing week in Christ. God bless you. See you back here at 6 o'clock.